Welcome everybody to um, what is going to be the um, 30th um, Crystal Bennett Memorial Lecture. Crystal Bennett's, um, Crystal actually um, sadly died in 1987. Um, we had two events this year, one to celebrate the 100th year anniversary of the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem, and the second to um, one of the uh, roughly the 40th year anniversary of the British Institute of the Man. I think it's 41 years maybe. Anyway, more or less. And um, but Crystal was very much involved with both of those institutes. I mean, she was a director in Jerusalem. I didn't look at the dates, but I think it was about 69 to 70 something, 75 yes. 76, around about that, actually, you know. And um, and then she moved over to a man. And um, formally, and, and she she was the founder really of the um, British Institute in a man. She was. And um, with Catherine Kenyon's support and so on. And um, I think it was first um, sponsored by the British Academy, I think, in um, 78. Thank you very much, Carol. 78. Um, I was her assistant director between um, 81 and 82. The last 18 months, she was actually in a man. She retired, um, sadly, through ill health at that stage, and moved to Cyprus, where she lived. But she, she was a a very, very important figure to many of the people of my generation and so on. She was um, around these series of excavations in, in, um, on the Edomite Iron Age sites in southern Jordan, and there's at least several people here who worked with her, I've spoken to this evening, and um, she, was a good, she was very good with young people, actually, and, and sort of encouraging them, and, and very, very friendly ladies. This is the 30th anniversary, I think it's not a, a memorial lecture, her son set this up after her death. Sadly, he has also died, um, I think it's sort of two years ago, 2017. Anyway, I'm very pleased to introduce um, Bill Finlayson, who is the um, director of the Council for Research and Levant, I think from, um, just remind myself, 1999 to 2018. And prior to that, um, Bill was actually um, manager of the field archaeology uh, unit at Edinburgh, and Edinburgh and so on for quite a few years. Did his, I think he did your BA and MA and PhD at Edinburgh, all three, yeah, that's right. Bill has done extensive research, um, field research on the Neolithic, particularly of southern Jordan, but has a very good knowledge of the whole Middle Eastern uh, Neolithic time frame. Um, he's excavated at um, uh, two major pre-Pompeian sites, at Dra, near the Dead Sea, and at um, Wadi Penan 16, with Steve Mythen, <laughs> co-directing with Steve Mythen and um, in Kite, respectively. And um, he's also done extensive work at Beda, which some of you may have visited, near Petra, which is also a slightly later Neolithic site, and, um, and including building experimentally, uh, experimental archaeology there, reconstructing some of the uh, types of houses. But he's also contributed greatly to public archaeology in Jordan, um, setting up a Neolithic uh, trail for those who are really interested in look at the Neolithic sites of southern Jordan and so on. Um, I should mention that there's also an expert on the Mesolithic of Scotland, and uh, Western Isles of Scotland and other parts of Scotland and so on, so he has a, um, that as well. And he's certainly published several books um, um, over the years and many, many papers on both these themes. Anyway, with no more, no more ado, I'll hand over to Bill and then... Well, it doesn't, doesn't leave me much to say, so... No, you couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> So it was uh, Simon Bennett himself who asked me to give this lecture in the first place, hoping I could give an account of the developments that have happened in the Beer, the Institute in the Man, the BSAJ in Jerusalem, and the CBRL for the decades that followed uh, Shimon Gibson's historical account of BSAJ. And I was very happy to agree to his request, but rather anxious about such a large topic, where, despite Simon's confidence, many other people had much more knowledge than I, including Andy, of course, who just spoken to you. So my solution has been to narrow down the topic and to focus on what I know best, which, as Andy has just explained, is the, the Neolithic. So the Neolithic, that's one of these things that we say at the start of all papers, grant applications, so on, is perhaps the key transition in human history, with the emergence of new forms of society that changed our relationships with the world, enabling people to live in large sedentary groups based on farming economies. And research into the Southwest Asian Neolithic, the Near East, uh, has been important since the Second World War, with Seabrow and its predecessors playing a vital role in all that research. 
Crystal Bennett herself, while director of the British Institute in Le Mans, played an important part in investigating one of the Neolithic sites. And I'm going to focus almost exclusively on Jordan tonight, and mostly on the earliest Neolithic, um, where I've done most of my own fieldwork, the pre-pottery Neolithic, or PPNA, as defined by Kenyon in her famous excavations and enormously influential excavations at Jericho. Excavations that famously were not just academically successful, but reached out across the, the, the whole range from children's books, newspapers and everything. Uh, and uh, I think the Neolithic Revolution was perhaps best, best known in the 1950s than it's ever been. I don't make any apologies for my focus on Jordan, especially southern Jordan. Over the last 15 years or so, it's become clear that the Neolithic of Southwest Asia is composed of a world of interacting societies and communities with no central core of innovation, but a diverse uh, collection of Neolithics. And our research in Jordan has shown it is an important and distinct part of this Neolithic world. By chance, after I'd agreed to give this talk, Gary Olufsen, famously the, Neolith uh, the excavator of the Neolithic PPNB site at Ain Ghazal, best known perhaps for its statues, was asked by ACOR, the American Institute, to write a piece on four decades of Neolithic research in Jordan. And he reminds us how revolutionary Kenyon's discoveries at Jericho were, but admits that when he became involved in Neolithic research in the 1980s, there was still very little known about the period in Jordan. Apart from the BSAJ excavations conducted by Diana Kirkbride, primarily at the PPNB site of Beda in, uh, near Petra. The only PPNA site known at the time was the site of Dra, uh, excavated and investigated by Crystal Bennett. During the 1980s and 1990s, the early Neolithic archaeological record of southern Jordan remained sparse and still only represented by Dra. There were no known early PPNB occupation, and the sole middle PPNB settlement at Beda was interpreted as a derived expression of earlier northern Levantine developments. Now, the situation in the rest of Jordan changed quite dramatically with British Institute-sponsored fieldwork, mainly in eastern Jordan. Uh, people like Alison Betts, Andy Garrard, and a whole cluster of other scholars working with them, including another former Honorary Secretary, Douglas Baird, and the recent chair of the CBR Research Committee, Louise Martin. British Institute-sponsored research continued to be central to the Neolithic. However, when I commenced work in Wadi Fanan in 1996 with Stephen Mython, Crystal site at Drawer remained the only PPNA site still in southern Jordan. More recently, other scholars have come through, like Tobias Richter, who did his PhD here at UCL and was a CBRL scholar uh, and is now thriving at Copenhagen University. Or we have Pascal Flor, who's, who's here tonight, who worked with us at WF16, did her PhD at Reading, and is now establishing new research into the late Neolithic and climate change. Sadly, this period of borderless European research may be about to end tomorrow. After working on material recovered by both Betts and Baird, I've had the good fortune to work collaboratively with a number of colleagues on a series of early Neolithic field projects in southern Jordan, including with Stephen Mythe and Wadi Fernan, Ian Kite at Dra, where we picked up on where Crystal had got to, Cheryl McCarabitz at Sharara and Beda, and Mohammed Najjar in Wadi Fernan and at Beda as well. For myself, working in partnerships like this has always been the most stimulating way to approach archaeology. Now, the PPNA is known as the period when wild plants began to be cultivated, and for this development of an and for the development of an increasingly ubiquitous built environment where the growth of sedentary villages is central to the early Neolithic process. It's both regionally and locally diverse, most obviously in large-scale architecture, such as the T-shaped pillars, the Gebekli Tepe in Turkey, the semi-subterranean partition circular communal buildings seen at Jerfalachar and Nemrik, and the unique tower at Jericho. It's reflected locally in southern Jordan, uh, where excavations over the last 20 years have revealed a pattern of diverse communal or shared architecture, including shared storage structures at Drar and large communal areas, such as this one at WF16 in Wadi Fanan, and mortuary areas as excavated by Cheryl McCarabitz at El Hama. PPNA settlements are not focused around residences or houses, but these social spaces. Even the core Neolithic development of food production includes a substantial range of local variation, and in the Upper Tigris may actually be marginal to the other developments taking place. Cultural cohesion in the PPNA of Southwest Asia does exist. There is a, there is a PPNA an identifiable, recognizable PPNA world, and it's visible in its chipped stone repertoire, in particular the easily recognizable notched El Kayan point known from the southwest tip of the Fertile Crescent 
all the way to the north uh, uh, part of Iraq, where Trevor Watkins was finding these, these tools at Kamesdra. It's become commonplace to argue that from the late Epipaleolithic through the Neolithic, populations grow and aggregate into increasingly settled communities, the consequent number and density of people increasing social stresses. Demographic, demographic stress models for social change all start from the premise that large sedentary communities appear as if by magic and then have to rapidly develop social mechanisms using tools such as the built environment, social norms, ritual, and perhaps cognitive change to cope with the social problems created by the new population density. However, large sedentary settlements are a relatively late manifestation of the Neolithic, and the large multi-hectare settlements with multi-storey architecture, such as these in, in, in the south of Jordan, at Beda, uh, sorry, Basta and Badger, that appear in the late PPNB uh, along the Jordanian plateau are a short-lived phenomenon. Before the PPNB, there's no evidence that even the largest of the PPNA sites within southern Jordan would have been sufficiently populous to cause the social stresses requiring the investment in symbolism argued to follow population rise. The subsequent late Neolithic, after the PPNB, mostly reverts to small-scale settlement, suggesting that what demographic stress existed may have been a short-term blip. Now, there are claims that some aspects of early Neolithic behaviour hang on to former hunter-gatherer ways of life, perhaps particularly in attempts to make egalitarian social systems through burial practices that anonymise the dead. These arguments don't really work. Any simple hunter-gatherer lifestyle vanished long before, uh, during, before the Neotufian hunter-gatherer complexity that, that started several thousand years before the Neolithic. But the argument, perhaps more importantly, masks something more interesting. It seems that just at the moment when social theory predicts the rise of hierarchical societies to cope with rising populations, demographic stress, and perhaps the emergence of property throughout the new storage economy, people start to invent novel solutions of egalitarian behavior and enforce sharing, evident in public shared food storage and food preparation areas, and in egalitarianism as expressed by the absence of the great goods that marked the preceding Natufian burials, such as, such as this one or the absence of a proposed Natufian shamanistic elite, again from these late hunter-gatherer populations. This is a reconstruction of a burial of somebody identified as, as, as probably a shaman from all the, the strange things found in their burial. I say these are novel Neolithic adaptations, novel behaviour, because there's very little actual evidence for an egalitarian society existing before the PPN. Arguments for such a society are strongly based on notions of the simple hunter-gatherer, the creation of the European Enlightenment, and a presentist use of ethnography that assumes a universal understanding that ancient and modern primitive societies are the same. Research on the Southwest Asian Neolithic has developed in a largely incremental manner, incorporating new data and insights into existing models without altering the underlying, perhaps increasingly shaky foundations, as can be seen in Mindy Zeder's confirmation of Child's definition of the Neolithic. Child's concept of the Neolithic and his famous Neolithic revolution were developed before significant fieldwork had been undertaken, certainly in Southwest Asia. However, his insights and forceful expression of them have dominated subsequent work. One of the consequences of recent research has been to show that Child's Neolithic Revolution extends over several thousand years in what's been described as a long or slow Neolithic. Uh, and, and here, this is the only chart I'll have with, with dates and cultural periods and so on, but we go from the hunter-gatherers of the early Epipaleolithic, the Natufian, which I just talked about, and these complex uh, hunter-gatherers. The pre-pottery Neolithic A, our focus for tonight, hunter-cultivators, we call them. And then in the PPNB and PPNC, low-level food producers, people who aren't yet really farming, but are producing quite a lot of their food from domestic, so, domesticated sources. And finally, in the late or pottery Neolithic, we maybe get to what we would nowadays see as farmers, perhaps. Now, this long-term developmental approach is open to the trap of searching for origins, evidence for the early examples of something, and this is a chart based, again, on one of Mindy Zeder's, um, showing how, how different social, uh, agricultural, economic um, settlement pattern and so on forms of evidence are picked up and used to argue that, that they, they start well in the past and there's a very long developmental approach to the, to the Neolithic. Evidence for population aggregation and, and, and architecture such as light brush shelters and long-term settlement from the epipalithic sites like Ahalo II or Karana IV, 10,000 years before the Neolithic, are proposed as steps to the Neolithic. So they're seen very much as forming a path to the Neolithic. With a, comp uh, 
And Hodges argued that the Neolithic process starts with people congregating in resource-rich locales such as a hollow tomb, with a complex set of entanglements and a practical logic tending towards sedentary life. Of course, while aggregation, uh, settlement and construction may well be components of a Neolithic lifestyle, there's nothing inherently Neolithic about them. They're well-known elements of modern hunter-gatherer lifestyles, and development in the Epipaleolithic is within hunter-gatherer behaviour, with antecedents such as shelters having been built for hundreds of thousands of years, as at Terra Almata. And contemporary hunter-gatherers um, have architecture and, and considerably greater sedentism than, than is known from the Natufian. While there's a long and deep history of human development that finally makes the Neolithic possible, that does not make every step on the way Neolithic any more than the evolution of bipedalism. Despite the great time involved, it's still considered a great divide between people like us and the other, the savage and the hunter-gatherer. In Kovan's words, translated by Trevor Watkins, we are the inheritors and the direct result of that artificial turning point. It is to that point that we must take our history back. Now, Kovan compared Neolithic farmers to French peasants, but he wasn't alone in such an anachronistic analogy. Accepting the modernity of the Neolithic allows all sorts of inappropriate analogies to be made. For example, the cover of Moore's report on the site of Abu Herrera in Syria, with its camels and uh, modern land rural landscape. From the process of domestication, not only of plants and animals, but water, the environment, and even ourselves, to the development of proper religion, the cognitive capacity to live together, and even the start of the Anthropocene, the Neolithic is avowedly the time when we escape the shackles of being just a part of the natural world and set ourselves on the road to urbanism, states, and modernity. Whether archaeological explanations are based on modern rational economic accounts of changing subsistence, or through social understandings, understandings largely underpinned by contemporary ethnographic analogy, they use the present to make sense of the past. The Neolithic becomes understood in terms of the past as present. And Zader, Mindy Zader, refers to being taken down a predictive roadmap that basically leaves no options. It's the inevitable consequence of arguments from hindsight that assume that people are building the Neolithic to create the modern world. And here you have a, a National Ge Geographic uh, filming expedition at one of our experimental archaeological sites. I'd argue that the, the thoughts behind it are not very different from the, the previous image. Our research is undermined by this comprehension of the Neolithic of Southwest Asia as a vital stage when people like us finally appear, stepping over the evolutionary threshold that separates us from a hunter-gatherer other on a one-way trajectory to our modern rational world. Now, Trevor Watkins has observed that despite the many attempts to explain the Neolithic in increasingly sophisticated manners, the underlying paradigm has not shifted. I'd argue that this is because the essential Neolithic paradigm is not child's checklist, but the Neolithic role as enabler of the modern world, and this has not been challenged. On the contrary, it's been encouraged by current concerns to justify research impact. Neolithic people being like us has blinded research from recognising that these people, 12,000 years ago, had a very different worldview to ours. Before we consider the possibility of rational responses to climate change or demographic pressure based on modern perspectives, we need to open our eyes to a potentially very different ontological framework and the process of ontological change that's likely to have occurred over this transition. Ideas of alterity and otherness and a theme of difference have been much more visible in research on the European Neolithic, but have barely surfaced in Southwest Asian research. <coughs> so I'm going to go now to, to, to some recent evidence, and this is the site of Shirara, where Cheryl McCarovitz and I have been undertaking excavations, which have provided an opportunity to rethink some of our essential understanding of the early Neolithic of Southwest Asia. Um, so this, this part of the talk very much depends on our, on our, on our joint project there. Shirara is an extraordinary PPNA site. This is a, an aerial shot, and, and the, you can see the little brown circles of constructions here. This is uh, an Akami photograph uh, by Bob Bewley's team flying over in a helicopter. So Shirara is this extraordinary PPNA site located in the steep, barren, and rocky lower reaches of the Wadi Hassa in southern Jordan. The location striking with the site surrounded by a series of conical hills above a sharp bend in the gorge. This position in what would always have been a difficult environment seems ill-suited for the early Neolithic, a period defined by its experimentation with food production. Sharara lies on a single small rocky knoll. 
Here's a close-up of what you saw from above. So it's an un equally unlikely venue for demographic stress, despite the complex architectural remains present. In failing to fit either of the commonplace tropes, economic or social, that define the early Neolithic, this remarkable little site provides an excellent opportunity to rethink the nature of the Neolithic transformation. Our excavation strategy was guided by a request from the Department of Antiquities of Jordan to investigate previous poor quality illicit excavations. Surface inspection and test trenches revealed a scatter of curvilinear structures with an overall extent of less than 2,000 square metres, typical of most Natufian and PPMA sites in Jordan. In one area, mud walls were reduced in height. Uh, mud walls from an earlier phase, and they were reduced to a common height, and the areas between them were filled in by old structural mud lumps and bits of mud walling and so on, and, and natural silts being redeposited, to create a level platform on which was put a floor, um, covering an area of about 30 square metres. The floor was apparently repaired and renovated during its use before it was burnt, and burnt timbers lie off directly on some areas of flooring, suggesting a roof had collapsed onto the floor. You can see the the floor on the left of the screen up there. The floor area is extended to the north side of a channel almost two metres deep and one metre wide. And the channel wall face was lined with a thick layer of mud plaster consistently and apparently intentionally baked. The mud plaster of the platform area curved over the top of the wall, forming a continuous surface with the mud plaster wall face, the base of the channel and the opposing southern wall face of the channel. And this sort of enveloping things in, in, in mud faces seems to be something that we're identifying more and more on PPNA sites, where, where the architecture is covered by continuous mud plaster, floors, walls, and everything, without, without break. The northeast end of this channel was cut through bedrock and was the deepest part, where an entrance was formed with steps down into it. Although structural modifications, erosion, and illicit excavation all combined to obfuscate the area outside the channel, the surviving parts of mud plaster flooring and walls indicate that a superstructure had been built to control access to the steps. Modifications to the steps and the channel mouth indicate that over time access to the channel was made more difficult, narrowing its mouth and adding a slight twist to the access. The southwest end of the channel ran beside the built-up deposits that levelled this area of the platform. Here, the plaster faces concealed several enormous cup hole mortars placed vertically in front of the levelling deposits. The plaster on the opposite face of the channel concealed several large stone basins, again placed vertically. Two small channels joined the main channel, one on either side. Unlike the main channel, which from its size and the presence of steps, appears clearly designed for human access, the side channels are too narrow and curved for human, or at least adult access, and have no evident entrance other than into the main channel. Below the floor, a are, 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 uh, sorry, that's the, the side channel there, there, just as it comes in. So below the floor are a number of burial features. These consist of small pits, some lined with stone slabs, and skulls placed, placed carefully at their base, sometimes with a number of long bones. The skulls and long bones appear to be fully defleshed before burial, given their placement in tight contact. In most cases, there are two skulls, one probably male, one probably female, and a mass of disarticulated and sometimes fragmentary bones is poured in over the top of these well-placed remains. The quantity of disarticulated bones in some instances forming a mound above the edge of their pit. One burial pit is slightly larger than the others, and although the mass of disarticulated bones within it is spatially very restricted, suggesting they may have been contained in a bag at the time of disposition, adjacent to these are a number of particulate, partially articulated bones, suggesting that some body parts were not fully defleshed before placement in this burial. So that's, that's the, the, the basic evidence we've got. And it suggested a number of concepts were in operation in the design, build, and use of the cemetery at Sharara. Concealment. The site is hard to access, remote from the landscapes known to be populated than the Neolithic. Both the alluvial fans in the Wadi Arabo and the wider valleys and lands of the Jordanian plateau. Although the Wadi Hassa is, and presumably was, a route between these locations, Sharara is invisible to be passing in the Wadi bed. The main channel appears to have had an entrance that was hard to see and negotiate, with a twist at the top hiding the interior from ready view. The groundstone tools set upright in the channel walls were hidden by baked mud plaster, and the layers of ash on the floor of the main channel suggest that the darkness of the interior of the channel may have been enhanced by smoke. Secondly, the cemetery and channels are very carefully designed and require major work input. The main channel and side channels appear to have been built as a single construction programme 
alongside the large floored area and roofed area that contains the burials. Previous construction of the area was intentionally leveled to create the space for the cemetery structure. The channel and its associated features are monumental, requiring significant work effort. And the cemetery was constructed as human space. To the east, beyond the channel, the area is sterile of all human and cultural remains. The burials are placed in the created human space. Burial practices bringing together bodies in various stages of decomposition required organisation, planning and scheduling. Thirdly, the design is, the design is intended to provide memorable experiences. The structure gives access to the dead. The channel entrance forces anyone going down the stairs to move in a particular manner. As I said, the channel would have been dark and possibly smoky. Sensory experience would have been reduced to touch, sound and smell. The channel provided an underground experience, not only going underground, but the construction of the stairs at the deepest end, plus a superstructure around the top of the stairs, are all designed to make the experience exaggerate how deep people had to descend into the ground. And the S-shape of the side channels with limited light being transmitted down the channel, too small for access. So the main channel is an excellent example of the structuring of movement, space and interaction using the built environment to create a cultural framework through which social relations are negotiated. The experience at Shirara is particularly closely guided and deliberate, increasing the potential <coughs> to guide the reproduction of social relations. The experience of entering the channel reflects a move into the unknown, presumably manipulation of emotional states, created shared memories in binding people together and creating solidarity, central to group cohesion and conflict resolution. People may indeed have brought their dead with them from other places for this unique experience. So we spent a lot of time discussing what all this might mean on, on, on the excavations, and uh, both, both Cheryl and I and, and others, uh, Sarah and Jade Whitlam, who are both here, joined, joined in the discussion. What does what does this mean? This this remarkable set of data. And it's one of the classic problems in prehistoric archaeology is that the more information you get, the harder it often becomes to actually interpret what's going on. Given the evolutionary role often attributed to the Neolithic when people allegedly became like us, an exploration of the potential of alternative realities becomes critically important. There's something ironic about arguing that the Neolithic saw a fundamental change in the relationships between people and their world, while framing Neolithic ontology as effectively modern. Yet this is what occurs. As I said, it's most overt in Covan's reference to French peasants, or Hodder's Cartesian opposition between Domus and Agrius. But it's bound up in the underlying concept that the Neolithic transforms hunter-gatherers into people like us. Yet the separation of nature and culture, so crucial to most of our modern conceptions of the world, and extended to the past to accentuate the modernity of the Neolithic, is not the sole way of understanding the world, but in itself a recent concept. Separating people and society from nature lies at the heart of the gulf between modern and other perspectives on personhood, and it's central to the idea of Neolithic people as people like us opposed to natural hunter-gatherers. To avoid this trap, alternative worldviews should not be conceived of as, a wrong, as wrong compared to our scientific understanding of how the world is. The ontological turn within anthropology suggests that rather than simply accept that Neolithic people had a different set of beliefs from us, beliefs which overlay a different perception of the same objective rea reality that we understand, we should consider a deeper level of difference. As Ingold says, we're not required to believe that the wind is a being that blows or that thunder is a being that claps. Rather, the wind is blowing and the thunder is clapping, just as organisms and persons are living in ways peculiar to each. The east wind is not a symbolic personification of the east wind, it is the wind. And if we can accept that things are not symbols that carry meaning, but a meaning in themselves, we can attempt to escape this modern duality of separating object from meaning and explore other ways of being in the world. The challenge for us as archaeologists is how to operationalize ins insights from an unknown ontology. There's some hope, as with the exception of the modern Western ontology, other ontologies are often relational, even if varying in detail. Animism has been widely deployed as an alternative ontology for understanding non-Western societies. Animism has a long history in anthropology since the term was first introduced by Tyler in 1871 as an essential original but erroneous way of understanding the world. And it's now understood as a reflection of essential human cognitive mechanisms to understand the world in terms of relationships, with a distance in those relationships primarily defined by the ability to communicate rather than biology. Accepting that many non-humans are people, with plants and animals being regarded as kin, and the dead continuing to act as persons. 
According to Descola, animist ontologies in general are not concerned with differences between categories of life and non-life, but accept a category of being. Now, animism isn't only a hunter-gatherer ontology, but Descola's Amazonian examples are not hunter-gatherers, they're cultivators who hunt wild animals. Perhaps the closest subsistence parallel the ethnographic world provides to the PPNA. In his example of Amazonian cultivator-hunters, kinship relations with non-humans are as strong with the cultivated plants, who are understood as blood relatives, as they are with the hunted wild animals, who are understood as in-laws. There are other alternative ontologies, of course, and there are many animisms and totemisms, and Paterson has argued we should consider these as analytical categories that are not exclusive, and cites examples from North Asia where there's a gradation from more animistic to totemic social ontologies. Notably, the more totemic societies, who distinguish between humans and non-humans, still do not map a difference of intentional persons and unintentional things. The variability and flexibility of these categories is important. They do not represent a one-size-fits-all total ontology, but a range of different ways of understanding the world. Modernist thought, with its dichotomy between subject and object, rather than through relationships, does not fit with such a worldview. Relational perspectives where both plants and animals have relationships with humans are at odds with the modern perspective of farming as production, a perspective that requires the presence of an individual agent acting as the producer of things. If the food being grown and hunted is made up of various degrees of kin, Understanding the processes of acquisition in terms of individual corporate production risks being anachronistic. So, for our interpretation, I'll assume that Neolithic ontologies were relational. The world was understood through a lens of relationships. This allows us a way to think about theoretical issues, such as personhood, agency, and Neolithic daily practice, as part of a different world, not like ours. Personhood is important to the archaeology of the Neolithic for discussing the growth of Privacy, property, lineage, household, egalitarian systems, differential worth and wealth and hierarchy. And much anthropological archaeology has been content to identify social roles, shaman, hunter, mother, and so on, rather than individuals. Where the individual has been discussed, as in discussion of burial practice, Plaster masks, the importance of individual ancestors, household lineages, or the development of status, background ideas of personal default to the familiar modern concept of the individual and the individual agent. But if we talk about people like us becoming like us in the Neolithic, we need to start with what we mean by people. An individuals as bounded individual, ind indivisible entities with fixed innate character traits, alienated from their world, engaging in relations of possession towards things, animals and land, are a very modern concept. Thomas stresses that in most non-modern societies, the purpose of constructing individuality is for the reconfiguration of social relationships. Both Meskel and Thomas agree that individuality is culturally specific, with Meskel arguing that individualism, the social actor as distinct, sovereign and autonomous, is a particularly modern cultural conception. Strathern developed the idea of the individual as a person composed of social relations, composite of multiple elements, such as mind, soul and body, which may have different origins and may not always be present. Persons and kinship are negotiated and take temporary shapes within social relations with other people, places, things and tasks, making the nature of personhood contextual and shifted, shifting and not fixed by biology or genealogy. In this fluid concept of the person, the boundary between life and death is not fixed. And as Croucher and Campbell suggest, experiences of the body and its relationship to the surrounding world differ vastly from our experience. Identifying people in the past as individuals just like us may create a familiar and comfortable sort of prehistory, but that's the problem in Southwest Asian Neolithic research. The quest to identify the emergence of people like us runs counter to the recognition of difference. While people will always have had individuality, that may have been a small part of personhood and not the centre of agency of decision-making or innovation. Strathern proposed that entire clans or households could be a multiply-constituted person suppressing internal variation and emphasising the collective. And Wagner introduced the concept of fractal bodies, where the clan body might be composed of many people's bodies with the clan as a fractal person. In a relational understanding of personhood, the collective person, an aspect of community, is where agency is expressed. The concept of the modern individual alienated from the world may be a caricature, but it's integral to the paradigm that Neolithic people developed a new relationship with the world, became increasingly socially fragmented, and their relationship with things 
was bounded with private ownership as opposed to the primitive, primitive hunter-gatherer individuals who related to and integrated with their world. For us, the question is how and when that transition occurred, or if it did. So in the Southern Levant, in the absence of the naturalistic art typical of the Northern Levant, research on symbolism has focused on the mortuary practices of emerging Neolithic societies. Practices generally described as homogenous with a particular concentration on skull treatment. Mortuary practices are generally described as mechanisms to hold increasingly large communities together, control social conflict, and variously maintain egalitarian systems or reinforce emergent lineages. My concern is not what specific beliefs may have been held, but with an awareness that Neolithic belief and understanding of the world was likely to be profoundly different from our own. Mortuary practice is contingent on notions of personhood and provides an archaeological window into concepts of identity. Underlying ontological beliefs about the meaning of death and the dead body inevitably govern how the remains are treated. The standard archaeological assumption of separate categories of the living and the dead may mask the nature of mortuary rites. Where personal identity is not important, far from skulls representing individual ancestors, secondary burial and disarticulation may not memorialise but can involve the process of absorption into a collective identity. Fragmented bodies suggest alternative identity constructions from our own, reminiscent of Wagner's fractal persons, indicative of a set of practices that reiterated forms of personhood that were not bounded in individual. Instead, in life and death, Neolithic people were immersed in a world of relationships between persons, places, animals, and artefacts. From our alternate ontological perspective, secondary burials of multiple bodies or body parts may not create a symbolic representation, but may reflect reality as perceived. What has been interpreted as the collapsing of individual identity through the process of secondary burial, or in the PPNB through the masking created by mandible removal and plaster modelling of faces, may reflect a concept of personhood that does not recognise individuality the way we do. In contrast with the modern, constant individual, the social being in a relational ontology can transform, and its individual parts be reconfigured with the new meanings. Dying is not an end, but a transformation, and the social existence of a person continues after biological death. The nature of relations within the community can continue to change through the context of events and ritual actions. If the dead are also active persons, then mortuary practices may better be interpreted as facilitating ongoing relationships. Croucher argues that structures, such as the mortuary building at Chayanu, were not just to house the dead, but to give access to them, with meaning created not by the specific individuals interred, but by repeated ritual events. As we increasingly understand that the early Neolithic rose through a regional patchwork of differing paths, breaking down traditional views of uniform Neolithic behaviour and ideology becomes an important task. This applies to the mortuary practice of the Southern Levant, which is far less homogenous than previously conceived. Croucher has observed that while standard mortuary practices are often assumed, the archaeological evidence shows considerable variation, holding very different meanings and spheres of use to different people at different times and places. Consequently, she argues that mortuary practices have to be studied on a small scale, rather than the large spatial and chronological scales traditional of Southwest Asian archaeology, which cannot approach local diversity or meaning. Even the skull treatment that reaches its most elaborate form with the plastered skulls of the middle PPNB shows considerable local variation. Here's one of the skulls, and a map by Ian Kite showing uh, two major different regions of, of practices with different treatments of the skull, different removals of the mandible and so on. And of course, in the south of Jordan, below the red dotted line, there are no plastered skulls. So it's not by no means ubiquitous, this iconic uh, mortuary practice. Mortuary practice in the PPNA has not attracted the same attention as that of the PPNB, but diversity again appears characteristic of the period. Within southern Jordan, there's variability both between the wide range of practices present on a single site, for example here at WF16, and between different sites, such as the distinctive seated bells, uh, burials of the site excavated by Sharon McCarvitz at El Hama further up the Wadi al-Hassa. Neolithic burial practices should not be treated as homogenous, but as a heterogeneous set of practices and performance across time and space. Rather than a symbolic representation of ancestors and past lineages, the disarticulated jumbled secondary burials at Sharara echo the fractal individuals of the relational community. The multiple body placed within each of the Sharara burials is the ongoing social person and does not refer to the skin-bound body of living, individual living people, but to effective kin, still active community members. The mixed-up bones of multiple skeletons in the collective skulls are not about anonymizing individuals, 
individualism is not a major concern, as the tension between individual and community is modern, but it reflects the fractal collective identity. These collective burials indicate the importance of the collective person over the private and individual. The burial does not create a memorial of lineage, but maintains or is the community identity expressed in life. Burial keeps dead persons within the community where they can be visited to maintain relationships, and the cemetery keeps communal identities running over generations. The investment made at Sharara reflects the importance of the dead and perhaps the channel is for the dead, not for the living. It's a smoky space with low visibility, with side channels too small to negotiate, perhaps spaces solely for the dead, with the main channel a liminal area. Concealment of the burials, the groundstone, the entrance to the main channel, and even the site, all contribute to the mechanisms of transformation from living to dead people, and a recognition that the nature of communication has changed. While the need for collective action and cooperation increases with delayed return and low-level food production systems, demographic pressure may lead to a loss in personal knowledge and intimacy, making such collective action more difficult. Communities serve to integrate people, and as settlements grow in size and permanence, more political institutions are believed to be necessary to resolve the internal conflict and scale of stress. As Bird and Browning have argued, structures such as households and supra-household institutions may begin to develop in the middle and late PPNB. However, scale of stress is unlikely to become a major issue in the generally small-scale sites of the PPNA, and there's no evidence in the PPNA to suggest any development of the concept of household. The communal architecture of the PPNA suggests that people lived and worked as communities prior to demographic pressures, potentially at different scales and compositions at different times and seasons, and our question is how collectives functioned and were sustained. While the default is to assume that a community is represented by an archaeological site, within the PPNA context of mostly small sites, the effective community may well have been geographically dispersed, each site existing as part of a wider network of settlement and landscape. Significant mobility was present in PPNA lives, not simply in the continued dependence on hunting, as few sites are sufficiently large for self-sustaining populations or to represent <coughs> substantial permanent population aggregation. It may therefore be helpful, more helpful, to understand sites as hubs of interaction rather than as economic and social units, where each settlement exists within local and wider networks of information and relationships. It's the coming and going and interaction of people that generates the community so that rather than being stable, it's constantly emerging. People have negotiated issues such as the mobilization of group labor, how to create, maintain, and share infrastructure, how to manage com communal resources, and how to convince the group of the benefits that will accrue. The stone architecture of the preceding Natufian may indicate these interactions are increasingly played out in specific places, but the practices of negotiation and affiliation will have assured that the community was always in a state of becoming. Birch has argued that there's a relationship between aggregated settlements and public architecture, suggesting that civic architecture may reflect the development of corporate organisation that served as an alternative to the development of hierarchical divisions in wealth or authority. In the absence of hierarchy in the PPN, collective ceremony and public architecture may have served to achieve social integration. Social integrative facilities are spaces such as dance houses, clan houses and men's houses, although other community activities such as working together, cooking, eating and sleeping can be equally important to the integrative role. Adler and Wilson showed that in small, politically simple societies, such social integrative facilities are generalised, combining secular and ritual functions, becoming more monumental and exclusively for ritual as community size increases. Within the PPNA, where population growth likely occurred in a limited fashion, there appear to be a number of simple measures taken to encourage community action and sharing resources through the construction of things like external food storage um, and food processing structures. So here we have the, the food storage. Using them, uh, they're not only shared, but publicly shared. Using them, adding and removing goods is fully invisible to, to your neighbours, uh, fully public and easily observable, potentially serving to enforce patterns of obligatory sharing by creating an open environment that allows social mentoring of the adherence to social norms expected of members of the community. Collective action is not limited to economic maximization. It can reinforce social values, build social capital, establish trust, and ensure reciprocity, materially affecting the quality of groups and networks.
The sharing and public storage seen in PPNA sites in southern Jordan may be as much about enforcing social norms and fostering community cohesion as about economic sharing. The large communal building at uh, Beda, which uh, when, when Cheryl and I went back to uh, Beda recently to do a little bit more excavation, we, we uncovered, um, may provide a middle PPNB example of this structural organisation continuing beyond the PPNA in an area lacking the plastered skull practices found to the north before the more specifically ritual buildings of late PPNB sites such as Ein Gazal appear. Meeting places are vital as the arenas where people maintain their social ties, where they construct their worlds conceptually and also physically through the built environment. Wengro and Graeber have argued that seasonal gatherings give an opportunity for statements of unity and cohesion, celebration of the cosmic order which provided the foundation for society. The behavioural and experiential components of religion with ritual and dance were probably part of Neolithic life, mediating in and reducing the stress of increasingly complex decision-making, central to group cohesion and conflict resolution. PPNA communal architecture may indicate collective decision-making, where the fractal body of the collective may be reinforced by an architectural framework that emphasised sharing and community. If PPNA settlements are not principally permanent residences, we can understand that they will be in a state of movement and flux, constantly developing and emergent. This is an important part of the PPNA relational ontology, where the world is conceived in terms of degrees of kinship. Sites and communities would have been connected by the relationships between people. Sharara did not serve as a locus for population aggregation, but mortuary practice, with remains apparently brought to the site fully defleshed, along with massive groundstone tools ported through the landscape, suggesting specific patterns of mobility. Mortuary rituals gave opportunities for people to come together for feasting, gift-giving, ceremony and mourning, strengthening their <coughs> networks. Shirara may have sat as a, as a node in a web of interaction where people came together periodically to bury their dead and experience the site and rituals performed. Within the wider PPNA landscape, it might be appropriate to see Shirara as a network hub, where the site location is more to do with relationships than subsistence. In a landscape, landscape such as the PPNA of Southern Jordan, the diversity between sites suggests the presence of many distinct communities. The architectural diversity, fluidity, and absence of any standard plan in the PPNA settlements suggests that each settlement emerged and developed along individually contingent lines. Within small-scale PPNA society, these distinct communities may have maintained a diverse landscape of local knowledge, tightly bound with local identity and embedded in local ritual. In the increasingly complex landscape of the PPNA, with developing subsistent technologies, knowledge would have been very powerful, and the transmission of knowledge becomes a part of ritual practice, and a destination site such as Sarara may have been vital for the Neolithic knowledge economy. Now, the emergence of private property is part of the modern Neolithic myth that once people invest labour in, in food production, the product of that labour is considered individual or group property. Notions of ownership are as contextually specific as notions of personhood, Things are often socially owned in societies where the individual is not emphasised. Everything we know about the PPNA, and indeed the PPNB, is that social and economic life is all about community. Searching for private property in the end of hunter-gatherer sharing may be asking the wrong question if the modern emphasis on individuals only emerges with re within recent history. It's been suggested that animal domestication is a social process that alters kinship status between animals and people, beginning to change animals into property. If the Neolithic does entail a, kinship, a shift from kinship to a property relationship, we need to be aware that the ch changing relationships with animals, and of course plants, would not be just an economic shift, but a fundamental ontological shift. Domesticating animals ceases to be about the changing relations of production, a Marxist perspective which has dominated thought on the Neolithic since child, to the changing relationships between humans and non-humans. Hodder's idea that private ownership of groundstone tools may commence in the PPNA does not explain the hidden groundstone in the main channel at Sharara. A PPNA relational ontology makes newly emergent private ownership unlikely in theory, and the presence of these groundstone tools within what appears as a community cemetery structure indicates a communal role. Confirmed by the location of groundstone tools at other sites, both the communal food processing structures of Dra and at the apex of the large communal structure at WF16. These large stone tools with multiple mortar holes may have been used by groups working together and held a significant role in shared tasks, processing shared harvests into shared food. Both the lithology of these tools and the scarcity of pestles found at Sharara suggest they were not used on site, but brought there, requiring group effort. It echoes the bringing of human remains to the site, and perhaps these fine examples of groundstone tools were considered as persons, hidden or buried in the cemetery.
PPNA settlements must have been intensive spaces for interaction with a shared experience of living in the community. In southern Jordan, increasingly sophisticated communal ways of life appear within relatively small population centres, guided by this ontological focus on the, on the relational and communal. The mortuary practices at Sharara provided access to collective persons, maintained communal identities over time through the living dead, and provided an important focus in the PPNA landscape. Food and resource procurement is not always the central concern of hunter-gatherer societies, and the sharing and public storage seen in PPNA sites in southern Jordan enforced social norms and fostered community cohesion in a, relation, in a relational world, people did not stand outside nature as producers. PPNA communal buildings, increasingly identified as a common feature of PPNA sites, reflect a very PPNA way of looking at the world. They flourish and spread remarkably rapidly, perhaps from the Tufin forebears, such as a Malaha or a Wadi Hama 27, and in the PPNA are evident from W16 in southern Jordan to Nemerik in northern Iraq. Their distribution is largely the same as the Alkaim point, which may have served as a common element of material culture that provided a link over a wide but loose network. The PPNA relational ontology bound the early Neolithic world together and provided the context for the early steps in plant and animal domestication. This relational ontology, lacking a focus on the individual but concentrating on the community, supported the adoption of a subsistence strategy that relied on a decreasing range of highly seasonal harvests through the collective management of labour and storage. The networks established through kinship and expressed in common material culture ensured the dispersal of new ideas and practices well in advance of the emergence of the multi-hectare sites of the Lake PPNB. It may be useful to think of ontological perspectives more sim simply as emergent narratives, world-building through storytelling to establish how people, gender, kinship, places, landscapes, territories and mobility can be understood in a world of mythical historical origins. Mythic narratives explain the universe and justify people's place in the world, but can also ensure accurate transmission of knowledge. Narratives create new identities, new community bonds, new ties to the landscape that enable knowledge transfer and new modes of subsistence. By building the narrative, the, sto by building the, narrative, the story sticks. The changes become part of the fabric of life. The idea of a world dominated by mythic structures where society was built on stories seems to resonate with Sharara with its mortuary located far from the pragmatics of significant resource procurement. It's noteworthy that the cemetery at Shirara was not present in the first iteration of the site, but appears to have been created by means of a very deliberate plan that massively altered the site, creating a new narrative. People at Shirara had a new story to tell, and the cemetery is created as part of new practices that began to be enacted. Adopting a modern rationalist approach, or deploying ethnographic analogies with modern hunter-gatherers or subsistence farmers, homogenizes the Neolithic, providing only a faint echo of the regionally diverse as lived in the Neolithic. In a decentered Neolithic, personhood, identity, and community, as constituted by relational ontological perspectives, are key as they lie behind regional identity and the transfer and adoption of knowledge. Rather than simply assuming people were like us or becoming like us, the form of Neolithic personhood needs to be a target for our research. In the years since Crystal's initial investigations of PPNA Jordan, our data set has grown enormously. Trying to frame our research and interpretation in a way that recognizes the high probability that we're dealing with societies that markedly differ, with markedly differing ontologies now represents a major challenge for our discipline. Our existing discussion of the Neolithic is full of modern references, including, including such homely and comforting terminology as hamlet, village, farming or household, taming the Neolithic. Alternative ontological perspectives and contrast may be difficult, hard for us to understand and be incompatible with our conventional modern perspectives. Alternative relational authorities subvert the uniformitarian base of archaeological interpretation, but we should try and use these to study the Neolithic as an indigenous alterity in its own right and use our ontological approach to think differently. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for a really fascinating and thought-provoking presentation and there are a million questions we can ask to follow up on, but um, perhaps we just take one or two questions. Yes. Dare I say, with climate change on everyone's lips nowadays, uh, can we learn a lesson from climate change that these people had to go through back in the, the day? Um, adaptation. I think one of the things that comes out from, 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 from all sorts of directions of Neolithic research has been it's often slightly out of sync with climate change. Um, so the Neolithic, as, as you describe it, probably starts before the, the end of the, 
the last cold, dry spell of the, the last ice age. Um, Pascal sitting at the back there, of course, is the person who did the work on climate change in the late Neolithic. And there, it appeared that one, one, of the, one of the key things was that human responses were actually very adaptable and successful. Um, so at, at that stage, and of course, we're talking much smaller populations, so it's easier to be adaptable. Um, people managed to negotiate climate change quite successfully. One of the things, I mean, there, there are lots of things we're still not very, very good at, uh, and, and one of which is, is, is tying together the dating of climate change processes with, with human activity, and they're often dated with different methods, which are difficult to match, and different levels of accuracy. So, 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 so it's quite a difficult process. The other thing is that Jordan, and one of the reasons why a lot of people like doing climate change in Jordan is because Jordan sits with climate boundaries running across it. So it's very sensitive to climate change, or particular areas are, because most of the effects of climate change, the really dramatic effects, are, are, are noted when sort of climate boundaries move. So one of the things that the, the work that's been going on in the Eastern Desert recently, in, in the later Neolithic, with people like Gary Rolson and, and, and York Rowan, has been they're, they're working out and they, they've been talking about working in the arid margins. But the more research they do, the, the, the more clear it becomes that these weren't arid margins at the time of the late Neolithic. And that maybe the people have expanded out to, to, to these areas as they've improved, um, rather than rather than develop new technologies for, for different environments. So, so we've still got a lot to learn about the, the relationship between the two processes. Very quick, hopefully not too simplistic question from a non-archaeologist, though. Um, talking about the way that these people made activist communities and sharing resources and so on, do you have a view as to whether that simply happened? Were there actually leaders, if you like, who sort of held that system together? So, were they, you might see as political leaders, or were they religious shamans? I think you can do it, and there's plenty of ethnic examples, you can do it without leaders. In fact, one of the things you're, you're doing is you're, you're, you're trying to enforce an apparent egalitarian society. I mean, egalitarian societies, of course, aren't really egalitarian. They're full of all sorts of things like age and gender and so on, which make differences. But but you're you're usually not passing on your your, your acquired status to the next generation, and your your status is often specific. So you, you do very well because you're a good hunter. So you have status when you're hunting, but probably not in another function where where, where you're useless. So your your status is often contextual, situational. Um, but the, 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 there's a lot of evidence that pe people who are living in egalitarian societies have to enforce it. It's not natural to us. And I think for a long time, people thought that, that, that hunter-gatherers, like many modern hunter-gatherers living in marginal areas of the world who enforce their egalitarian principles, people thought that prehistoric hunter-gatherers were like that. There's no real evidence for that. Where we see evidence, it's much of it's for hierarchical societies or differential wealth, differential status. And of course, that's the, the natural thing amongst all the other African great apes. So they're very hierarchical animals. Um, so we can assume that probably we were fairly hierarchical. So it's not something that has a great weight of history behind it. And what I think it's perhaps looking like now is that with the Neolithic, just as you're moving into a different economy where there are things to be owned, things to be stored, harvests to be gathered and fields to be managed, this sort of thing, this may be where people really start finding it's quite important to enforce egalitarianism, in, in the, at least in the early stages of this process. So you don't, just at the moment when, when there's a real potential to become rich, society as a whole stat, tries to stamp this process down. Louise, you know. a quick one. Thank you, Phil. I'm just wondering whether your dating of the site suggests, of the Sharara site suggests a longer-term occupation. And I'm asking that because the large bedrock waters, do they relate to the they clearly relate to a previous occupation and then the refugees. And do they relate to a settlement, or are you interpreting as relating to specifically the, the, the mortuary site? Because they look like they've had a lot of use. They, they do indeed, and they're, and they're not they're not local to the the. It's on a rocky knoll, but the, the, they're, 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 they're they're brought in at whatever stage. There is there is as I said there's an absence of any pestles, but very few pestles. We haven't yet got all the dating evidence. We're, just submitted more, more, more samples for dating. And the trouble also is, is that the earlier phase, uh, to some extent, where we're excavating has been wiped out by this massive construction program that flattens it. And because we were working at the request of the department to 
solve some of the list excavation and, and salvage the site to some extent. We weren't opening up major new trenches everywhere. So some of our information comes from cleaning up the sections created with list excavations rather than um, digging new to, 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 to new trenches. So, so in some of them it's quite difficult to work out the phasing and compare it to this. So don't really know, but certainly they, they weren't, they're, they're brought to the site, whether, whether they're brought in and used in the earlier phase and then recycled, or brought in once they've been used. They're, they're, I mean, they're fairly heavily used, um, and, and, and they're much the biggest uh, cup hole mortars I've encountered in some of They're also unusual in the sheer number of um, cup holes are in some of them, yeah. Thank you very much indeed, Bill. And very <laughs>